The Athletic. Totally Football Show. Glory for Los Blancos as Madrid win the Champions League, but the tears are all too real for Liverpool on a shameful night for UEFA. We put the desired respect on Thibaut Courtois' name and admire Ancelotti. Elsewhere, Scotland and Ukraine prepare to play off and Nottingham Forest are promoted to the Premier League. Once again, Nottingham Forest are promoted to the Premier League. In association with Paddy Power, this is the Totally Football Show. Welcome in then, listener. Monday, the 30th of May for us. I'm Matt Davis-Adams, joined today by Daniel Storey. Hello, Matt. Good morning. Good morning, it is indeed. Michael Cox is also with us. Hi, Michael. Hi, Matt. And Sasha Gurionov too. Hi, Sash. Hi, Matt. Did Wotiki Forest get promoted to the Premier League? They did, yes. Oh, yes, okay, first cool. time in 23 years. Yes, we'll talk more about that later. Um, listener, it's been quite the weekend uh, for all of us, so forgiveness in advance if it's a bit of a low wattage podcast. If that is the case, of course, I will go into a detailed explanation of why and the production of the show on my LinkedIn page later today. Um, Sasha, you are in, in Paris. You'll be helping us dissect the big matchup of the weekend. I'm talking, of course, about the journalist game on Saturday. <laughs> You're up against Julian Laurent. How's his on-pitch trash talking? Is it as, as bad as in the Intertotally? Well, actually, Julian ended up playing the full game for us uh, because we were running slightly short of players. So at the start, we had, um, we had a 12, uh, but Jules was part of our midfield engine. We actually started off reasonably well, uh, you know, backline marshaled by... Jonathan Northcroft and Jason Burt, you know, Rob, um, Rob Draper at left back. Uh, all of these guys, of course, went on to do some superb reporting on the final itself, uh, which, which I can only applaud them for because the game was exhausting and basically went on for about 20 minutes too long. Uh, we were 3-0 down with uh, 20 minutes to go and we ended up losing um, 7-1. Um, Frédéric Piquillon uh, with a fine finish from the edge uh, against me. I think it was uh, Mathieu Baudemer, uh did uh, a nice shimmy on me as well. So as you can see, we're up against a very strong side, including some uh, excellent ex-pros. So uh, we actually performed admirably. And I scored a comedy on goal. <laughs> there you go, listen. You weren't expecting a Frederick Piquillon mention in the first five minutes of this pod, uh, were you? Michael, are you sitting comfortably or a little saddle sore, perhaps? Uh, yeah, a little sore. Did the ride 100 yesterday morning. So uh, I was thankful for no extra time and penalties because I had a 6am start. Um, <laughs> but yeah, busy weekend around. I got back just in time for the playoff final, which I'd, I'd actually forgotten was on because I was thinking so much about the cycling. But it was just a, the perfect thing when you just can't move from your sofa to be watching for two hours. It was great. It certainly was. Uh, Daniel, you had quite a nice weekend, didn't you? Yes. Uh, Champions League final, Saturday night. Uh, very woefully early start on Sunday morning to get back to, to St Pancras and then to Wembley and then the warmest, most delicious train beers last night on the way back to, to Loughborough. So yes, uh, I'm looking forward to a week off after today. Daniel, did you go to the tennis as well? Yes, I did go to tennis. I've never been before and I have to say, I mean, tennis is very much not my thing and I didn't think watching tennis would be my thing, but it was... It was a nice thing to do for three or four hours before a Champions League final. I'm not sure I'd become a, a Roland Garros head, but it was, yeah, it was nice. All right, so not ace, but there was plenty for you to love on Sunday. We'll talk about that later. Uh, that section comes with a fawning warning, by the way. First, though, the Champions League final. You're listening to The Totally Football Show, sponsored by Paddy Power and part of the Athletic Podcast Network. So Real Madrid claimed a 14th Champions League slash European Cup. Vinicius Junior's goal. The difference, but what happened on the pitch, not what this final will be remembered for. After Liverpool supporters were delayed getting into the stadium and some were subjected to pepper spray attacks by police. Daniel and Sasha were both there. Sasha, you, you were kind of in, in the eye of the storm for this. T tell us about it, how it unfolded. How early did you get to the ground and, and what did you see when you got there? So I wasn't quite in the eye uh, in the first part of it, but I was certainly an eye for the second part of it because, um, effectively, there was two access roads uh, from Arrière-D uh, station Stade de France Saint-Denis. There's supposed to be two Arrière lines serving Stade de France um, on any day, uh, which is Arrière-B, uh, which I think was cancelled because of, of a strike. Anyway, it wasn't running. And what happened was that people started turning up at, um, you, know, sp you know, early, uh, like six, and being funneled up the Avenue du Président Wilson um, 
and they all ended up being stuck under an underpass where the French police were trying to implement a very strict ticket check. A ticket check that uh, all but disappeared by the time that when my friend my, uh, Michael uh, turned up and went down the same route from like seven o'clock onwards. Um, so that barrier disappeared and there was a crowd of people coming through having already been built up. I went around the other way, um, carried on to Avenue du Stade de France, bumped into the Liverpool team bus at around 7.40. I'm not sure where, whether it was full or not by then. And we went, our first check was closed. We started walking up to it and people started coming back saying, no, it's closed. So we went around the corner uh, to, I think, Rue du Saint-Nation. And we managed to get through that way. It's actually worked okay. And we didn't take too long at that stage. And, you know, we had paper tickets, which were sort of checked with a pen. And, you know, the um, people who got the tickets through EFA had their uh, sort of devices activated. And then we got in to be next to the stadium, bumped into Rafa Honigstein and his friend Michele, who played earlier. Rafa was a manager earlier. Had a lovely chat. And then I went around the corner towards turnstiles um, Y and Z, which were the two turnstiles for the Liverpool fans uh, to get into the ground. And all I could see was a sea of people. Uh, this is probably quarter past eight, um, maybe 10 past eight standing outside the entrance gates, uh, which were only partially open. Uh, the crowd wasn't really moving anywhere. And the thing that struck me the most at the time was that there was, these people stood outside. There was no, I couldn't see any police. I couldn't see any stewarding. So it's effectively people trying to control themselves as they try to go in. And from what I understand up to that point, the gates kept on getting opened, closed, opened, closed, uh, because the um, stewards either couldn't cope with the city of people. They said, you know, those people climbing it. Uh, climbing over the fences. The guys I saw climbing over the fences were local. Um, I think the gate when I was at, at Y, I think there was um, there was a few guys there getting chucked out who didn't have proper tickets, um, but there were like basically single figures. And in the end, I found myself standing outside this gate for an hour without actually moving because I compared two pictures that I had until it was quarter past nine, at which stage they started letting us through in a single file. And in the meantime, you know, we could, I could feel, you know, tear gas sort of wefting towards me up my nose and like all the guys around us suddenly start coughing. Um, so I got in eventually for about um, 9.20, 9.25 and I actually made the kickoff. But I was speaking to my mates who were at other gates, the guys at Z, uh, who at quarter to nine with the gate closed realized they were getting in here. They tried to go around the corner, gate A, no, gate B, no, gate C. They were started talking to the stewards saying, look, our tickets are valid and tickets that you had wouldn't work at a different gate. Uh, and they spoke to the stewards and they were going, okay, in you go, let them go under the turnstile. One of my mates had his barcode bitten off. Um, oh, sorry, the QR code on the corner, bitten off, so he couldn't use it again. He was like, what, what just happened there? Uh, yeah, and um, at the same time, speaking to people, I could see that the only buildup that there was was at Y and Z. Uh, people who got the tickets through the Kuyafa lottery, going in, say, through gate C on the side, had absolutely no problem, just breezed in. So it feels to me that by creating an initial bottleneck, the French police basically created a big buildup of crowd, which then the whole system couldn't cope with at all. And... You know, the police then panicked. Um, I think the, the stewards panicked and they kept on closing and opening the gates. And also fundamentally, there was complete lack of crowd control outside the final gate into the stadium. And then, of course, as the rumors started coming in about, you know, ticketless late fans, which is, of course, is not true. Uh, because if anything, people started coming at six early. And then they reported that the gates were still closed at 6.30. So it was just a complete mess. And there was very little information. And uh, yeah, it didn't, it just, it, it just felt like there was nobody in control. And I'm pretty sure we'll get to the aftermath of the game as well, which wasn't very nice either. But before the game, certainly by the time people got in, it was like, I, I don't think people could really concentrate on football very much. In our crowd of people, we had, uh, there was a girl in the wheelchair, which the crowd kind of helped towards one of the gates, which we still did open for her. Uh, there was a blind guy just wandering around, didn't know what was going on. There was kids, there was um, there were women stuck in the crowd, and these people have been there maybe for two or three hours. There was also horrendous videos of small kids getting pepper, like pepper spread or tear gassed, and it was just like you look at it and going, "What is going on here?" But I think also one one factor that cannot be denied is a lot of locals trying to chance it, and there's also other videos emerging of people clearly knowing the stewards and filming themselves getting under the turnstiles, and it's just it felt to me like um, what you know in advance was advertised as a ring of steel, you know, with four checks. It just simply didn't exist. Daniel, you were in the stadium fairly early, right? What, what was your experience of, of the delay to kick off and, and the information that was being relayed to you? Yeah, I got in maybe two and a half hours before kickoff and, and there were crowds building up, but I, I can't say, you know, with any honesty that I thought the problems that we were going to have, we would have had. There were two things I noticed. The first is that there were areas 
with which you could walk up the stadium that were cordoned off. But they were cordoned off with red and white sticky tape, basically, which, if you're trying to control thousands of people, is is not good enough because it doesn't provide any real information. It's firstly very easy to break, and secondly, there was no accompanying instructions of this is why this area is closed and this is this is where you need to go to an area that is open there was no information whatsoever from the moment you came out of that metro until basically you got to the stadium there was no information of where you should go you were relying on stewards who as Sasha said didn't really know what they were doing and the second thing that I noticed when I was in the ground is a huge number of people coming to their seats with with tickets and having to move out people from those those seats because who were already sat in them and therefore had either just sat in the wrong place or as seems more likely didn't have a ticket at all or had a fake ticket and most of those were kids under 16 um i i i don't know but they seem to be local kids and they were just getting moved out but because they then put the stadium on a lockdown I guess they weren't being moved out of the stadiums. They were just kind of milling around in the concourses or what was more likely being, you know, trying to find a different seat. Uh, that's ridiculous. I mean, this is this is the Champions League final. UEFA have had problems at, at, at games before and this was incredibly badly organised. And, and the other thing we should say is that the first message they sent out on the screens, which they then changed and then re-put back up to say that the game was being delayed because of a late arrival of fans, is... I mean, it's hugely loaded, and it's also, from what everyone saw, completely wrong. Um, they then changed that to a security issue, changed it back to late arrival of fans, then said it was because fans arrived or got into the ground without tickets, which, like Sash, I saw a few locals doing that even two and a half hours before kickoff, and it, it seems like a fair number of that happened. But they changed that number to, say, thirty to 40,000, which is... That's a nonsense. Like in the in the smartphone era, we would have known if that had happened, but as it was happening, not afterwards. So that that is a nonsense figure, and there are huge questions to ask of of UAP or the, the authorities. And um, yeah, it, it it sounds really trite to say because it was a Champions League final, and I did enjoy the match, and it was absorbing. But it, it is a remarkable effort from from whoever is responsible to make the football feel almost secondary during a Champions League final. It's a, it's a complete disgrace. And Michael, it's it's a ground that, that has hosted football matches plenty of times before. It hosted a concert with tens of thousands of people just, just days before this. They know how to steward and police events, one would think. It didn't happen here. Maybe the differential there was, was UEFA. People calling for an investigation, but but who investigates UEFA? Would it would it be them investigating themselves? And, and what, if any, ramifications do you think there'll be? Or or maybe, you know, knock-on effects for, for future UEFA events, because this comes not long after the Euro 2020 final and, and the chaos that ensued there yeah I um, I think it's a fair point and I think that what happened after the Euro final last year I can't help thinking that UEFA almost got away with it really there was so much focus on Wembley and supporters and the FA I think but yeah UEFA did seem to get away with it I was actually at the the Euro final as a fan and got caught up on in uh, a lot of people barging through the turnstiles and uh wrote a letter of complaint and managed to get my tickets refunded. So if you're a Liverpool fan and fancy doing that, definitely worth giving it a go. One thing to add, though, I think UEFA said that they were not aware of this sort of this filtering system that the French police put in place. I think there was a statement shortly after the game. Um, so I think whilst UEFA do control it, I think a lot of it does also fall down on the local law enforcement. And I think if you look at, you know, how things have gone in, in French football stadiums uh, recently, hasn't hasn't been a great track record, especially, I think, was it Saturday or yesterday? Saint Etienne got relegated, and the whole place went completely nuts, and it was it was completely out of control. Um, so, yeah, it's. I think fundamentally, though, if if you look at it and if you look at the problems outside the stadium, there's a simple thing for for people, I think, to can decide for themselves about how this was managed. Uh, it should take 15 minutes to walk from Stade de France Saint Denis uh, area line D station. 15 minutes to the stadium, it was taking people over two hours. And I think you can see that from that, like that, that this wasn't going to end particularly well. Madrid 
to the game then. Here's Michael Cox tweeting, I usually think previewing games for individual battles is a bit simplistic, but Vinicius versus Alexander-Arnold really does feel crucial uh, with accompanying link to Illuminated article that came to pass. Uh, Michael, you spotted it before Jurgen Klopp did. Was that the uh, the most important matchup, obviously, but the moment that Alexander-Arnold will, will look back on with plenty of regret? Yeah, probably. I mean, I don't think he got himself in a great defensive position and his body shape probably wasn't right for the, for that situation. I think he can be a little bit vulnerable when he's defending the far post in various ways. I think in the air as well, he's, he's not the best. I must say, I do have some sympathy for him. I mean, it was, I think, a wayward shot from Valverde that fell perfectly for Vinicius to score an open goal with one touch. And like I say, it's not a great defensive position, but I wonder whether he's getting a little bit too much stick for it. It was just a ball arrowed precisely to where the Real Madrid player was. And I don't think you can cover every single player in every situation perfectly, especially when there's a situation in terms of offside. You know, if it, if Alexander Arnold was in a position to block that, maybe he would have played him further on side. Um, so I feel a bit sorry for him. I actually thought Alexander Arnold played relatively well with the ball, took up some good narrow positions, had a couple of wayward shots. But... Um, yeah, I do. I do feel a little bit sorry that he's getting all the stick for it. Because I guess, Sash, it's really about Liverpool's profligacy, isn't it? If you have 24 shots at goal in a match, you ought to score one of them, no matter how good the goal is. Well, you could, you could say 61 shots in three finals and score zero goals uh, for, a, for the vaunted front line. It's not particularly great. Um, and again, I... I thought uh, the start of this match was a little bit odd, but I mean, Liverpool were the better team. But I think maybe fundamental Liverpool's performance was affected by the fact that it had two warm-ups. Real did one um, and the, the whole dis- build-up to the game was disrupted and I think maybe when the onus is on you to attack, it's something, some things will be disjointed. Having said that, Liverpool also had injury concerns about Fabinho. I think Thiago didn't look quite on it. Having said that, uh, the Sadio Mane chance, which uh, forced the Courtois save uh, in the first uh, half, it's such like great football all round. I don't think Mane could have struck it much better. Okay, it could have been nearer the post, but the way that Courtois gets down and uses his like length effectively to get the ball onto the post was superb. And then he got a little bit lucky that they didn't hit him on the, on the bomb and go in. Uh, but, you know, you make your own luck. And I think all the way throughout, it wasn't just those saves. It's um, Courtois, I think, exuded, you know, supreme confidence. You know, he was, you know, before the game, there was a talk of, you know, Salah being man on the mission. Uh, on the mission. And I think in this situation, Courtois definitely had... Um, uh, had a sense of mission about him. Uh, and I think, you know, he, he made, I think, was it nine saves in the end? And the only, I think, other one that I think he didn't absolutely have to make uh, was the one uh, when Salah got through and he kind of feathered it um, wide of the post in the second half in an absolutely crucial stage of the game. And again, it's, I think this is a situation where, um, you know, for Real Madrid, who had, I think there were more than, you know, a team that just had three shots and two on target. There was a certain way they controlled the ball. There was a certain way they came from under the press, including for the goal. In such a kind of reactive performance, in a way, uh, you do want your goalkeeper to be big. And anything that came close to any anything that came close to him in the um, six-yard box, he got. I think this is one of the criticisms towards Liverpool and Trent in general as well. The delivery, it, they just couldn't get it right. Um, but uh, yeah, I th- I, while it might be a little bit reductive to say it was, you know, Courtois who won in the game, but he was certainly the possibly the most crucial component in it. Classic Courtois on the pitch and on the mic afterwards. He says there isn't enough (laughs) respect on his name in England. I'm not sure which magazine it was which didn't put him in the top 10 goalkeepers, but it clearly affected him and he clearly hasn't yet read Michael's post-match piece for The Athletic. You called it one of football's all-time great individual performances, Michael. Well, I think it has to be considered that. I know it seems weird to say, but I mean, it's the biggest stage in club football. His side was completely dominated and you have to say he was... Not the sole reason, but the primary reason why they even had a chance. I mean, maybe it was only two or three really great saves, but, you know, that's all all you can ask for from a goalkeeper. So, yeah, I thought he was absolutely fantastic. And he has been a good goalkeeper for a long time. I remember at Atletico, he was, I think at that point, maybe the best in Europe. Started well at Chelsea. I always get the feeling he didn't particularly want to be at Chelsea. And I think his performance level maybe suffered because of that. Um, But it was great. I quite enjoyed his interview as well I believe it was 442 magazine who did a did a list of him I love it when footballers get annoyed about this level of this petty stuff I mean it's just fantastic I mean I don't know who wrote that 
list whether it was a collaborative effort but it's one of those things where probably the writer just like just forgot about him maybe that's that is the insult but I'm not sure they necessarily considered him and thought yeah he's the 12th or 13th best probably just knocked up a list half-heartedly and forgot about him and yet that spurred on someone to win the Champions League final fantastic so if that was one of the great individual performances what about Carlo Ancelotti's managerial performance Daniel the first manager to win the European Cup four times incredible to think that it was what a year ago that he was finishing 10th with Everton yeah I mean a reasonable decision to go to Real Madrid I think we can say in hindsight (laughs) um he I mean he just he seems to personify that team perfectly and yet I think there must be something about Real Madrid maybe it's the kind of strength of the club as a whole because that's exactly what Zidane seemed to do as well he seemed to kind of click into some inherent Real Madridness that managed to particularly in the Champions League to get this supreme strength out of them he exudes an incredible amount of calm to the extent that you can listen to Ancelotti talk and sort of get tricked into the fact that you know essentially he doesn't seem to care that much it all seems to sort of wash over it and yet clearly on those big occasions he has an ability to motivate players to be the best versions of themselves. Um, I think there's a there's a with Ancelotti there's a there's a slight risk, particularly on this final. Of we're not going overboard on the reputation as a whole. On this final, I think they should have lost the game. I think you know, Michael's absolutely right. Their goalkeeper won them the match, and how much of that is down to Ancelotti is open to a fair amount of cynicism. I think, but you can't doubt a man who has now won more Champions Leagues than any other manager and and for Real Madrid as well I, I I kind of I think I made the mistake in the build-up of kind of considering Real Madrid as this sort of still historical giant but they've now won more Champions League since 1998 than any other team has in in their history their their modern dynasty is more impressive than their historical legacy now because it's so much harder it's there are so many more competitors there are so many you know they've beaten three if not four of the the biggest competitors in in the Champions League era so for that alone you have to say hats off to Ancelotti I I think he probably got a little bit lucky in this final again I agree with Michael I don't think the goal was necessarily by any great design although it was a a good run from from Vinicius Um, but they they stayed in the game and that's what they've done all season can I add a couple of things as well I think what Ancelotti could rely on this game on is also Effectively, Real Madrid DNA, because you look at that, that Modric-Casimiro cross midfield started the finals in 16 and 17 and 18. Benzema played in those finals, Carvajal played in those finals. And arguably, these were, apart from Courtois, you know, the core of the um, uh, Real Madrid uh, in this in this particular final. And also, at the same time, this practically this team has beaten Liverpool before, which I think was, would have given them confidence. Vinicius Jr., uh, you know, gave, um, you know, Trent Alexander nightmares before in April last year when they beat him 3-1 in the Champions League quarterfinals. And uh, Trent also got a lot of criticism after that game as well, despite the fact that, again, I think it's often it's easy to criticise him when he is exposed. Um, and in that particular game, you know, Cross exposed him with an excellent pass. So I think uh, this this seems to be the Ancelotti skill. is like, you know, just let the guys get on with it and... Um, create a nice atmosphere for everyone to feel, you know, happier and to feel comfortable around. And, you know, you have a game where Modric, who's 36, looks absolutely on par with everyone else as well. And it just seems to be an extraordinary synergy. What do you make of Liverpool's performance here, Michael? Is Jurgen Klopp open to some criticism or can he just say, well, if my strikers had converted the chances, we'd have won the game comfortably? I thought he was quite self-critical after the game, actually, considering they've been the better side. I can't remember precisely what he was saying, but he was talking about needing to play on the outside of rails block rather than inside I think along those lines um, they weren't quite their best but they were the better team I mean you rarely see great performances in finals and I think particularly the 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 strange build up to the final will have affected the players in terms of the build up not necessarily what was happening to the fans although I gather there were some families caught up in that but just the fact it was delayed by 35 minutes second warm up I do think these you know the psychological aspect as well as the physical aspect means it probably wasn't going to be a great final um but they were the better side and and yeah it was a goalkeeping performance that denied them um but I do get the sense that I mean Klopp is very self-analytical I think and, and Liverpool have continually improved over the years by Klopp seeking to address weaknesses in the side um, and maybe he will feel after the 
the three goalless finals that they do have to change something in the forward line. And it looks as if that will be enforced because it looks like Sadio Mane might be, uh, might be moving on. But yeah, overall, they're a better side and on another day could have won. Not much trepidation from you, Sasha, had a next season. Though. Michael mentions that the loss of Mane, we, we assume that Mo Salah, what, is running down his contract. There might need to be a little bit of a refresh to the squad over the summer. I, I think there would have to be, um, and again, possibly another forward in, into that line. Maybe something that adds a different dimension, because I think one thing that does get overlooked, for example, with Origi, when he has come on this season to put Liverpool into a 4-2-3-1, it's a different proposition. And I think they... I think they could do well uh, with getting another big centre forward. Um, and I think at the same time, yes, despite the fact you know, the last two games have been disappointing, uh, I do get the feeling that this Liverpool team can only improve. Um, I do also get the feeling that this Liverpool team needs needs to keep Thiago fit uh, because with him, when he is when he you know, he's on it like he was in April, I think this, this team is at an absolutely different level. Uh, but also I think psychologically, um, what Klopp did, I think, I thought was very clever because he insisted on having the parade yesterday long before the finals were played. And given how completely, you know, um, on the floor everybody felt on Saturday night, um, all the reports from the parade from Liverpool yesterday, half a million people turned up, you know, videos of the players, Klopp getting very emotional. I think that actually for, for the squad and for the fans, it kind of, instead of being on the floor at the end of the season, it actually gives them, gives them something of a lift that they could carry on to next season. When, of course, Salah would have six weeks off because everyone is going to the World Cup. So I think, like, I, I don't feel particularly pessimistic. I'm disappointed. Uh, but I think, you know, this team can only go up. Yeah, they got Fabio Carvalho to come into that forward line as well. They had a great season. Uh, with Fulham. Daniel, before we move on from the actual game, we ought to mention that VAR decision, which saw eventually Karim Benzema's goal disallowed just before half time. Got everybody scratching their heads. It took absolutely ages to decide. I'm guessing in the stadium, you were just as puzzled as we were at home. Yeah, I mean, the one thing you get in the stadium because you don't have the replays is that um, the amount of time it's taking indicates that either A, it's a very close call on the line or B, that there's some secondary controversy or secondary thing to consider. And when it then takes, I think, three and a half minutes, you can tell that whatever happens is going to be controversial. I Every day is a school day and I had no idea that that exact type of goal would be given as offside. I assumed that if the defender plays it, then that resets the phrase to use the, the the VAR nomenclature and that it would be given as a goal. By all accounts, um, by the rules as they are, that is the correct decision. But it's just another of those VAR decisions that I think, if you actually watch football, that felt like a goal. It felt like a defender was trying to block the ball and if a defender blocks the ball and it happens to go to a striker, then that's a goal. Um yeah, just again, just complete confusion in the ground. No replays. No one really knows what's going on. Everyone's just sat there waiting. And the fact that everyone had been delayed already meant that that VAR decision, it felt doubly as long because it just felt like we were all sat around again waiting for football to start. Um, Sash, tell us about your experience leaving the stadium then. So, yeah, um, after the, so because we weren't quite aware at the time of exactly what went wrong beforehand and the approach to the stadium, we effectively went around the back and tried to go back out that way. And again, uh, the uh, underpass was partially blocked by vans and it moved slowly, uh, but eventually we got out. We got to the turn towards uh, line D and we had a look at an underpass that was full of people and we carried on. At this stage, some of my other friends took the road in we took initially and actually got to uh, line B area, which was running trains towards Gare du Nord. Again, like we weren't re really aware of it. There was no one to give directions about this. I think the ones who left early got through that uh, line B station, I think Le Plan. Uh, got through it quite quickly. The ones who came in the second wave were attacked on the way in, were attacked in the platforms, uh, just basically mugged, rushed. Police didn't seem to do very much, uh, according to my friends who were caught up. At this same time, we were walking up Avenue to Wilson and we were looking around us and it was dodgy. Um, but we thought, I was with my mate Rich and uh, we were two quite big lads, so we thought, we'll just carry on walking. Let's walk to Paris. Um, and we carried on, carried on. We had fewer and fewer people around us. We got to Le Périphérique, um, and all the like spaghetti junctions underneath it, like all this like falling down concrete and stuff. And we were like, oh my God, this isn't great. Then we crossed the no man's land into um, Paris because between 
so the two ring roads it's effectively some sometimes it's built up sometimes it's just a wasteland and we got to uh, le port de la chapelle metro station and we got in but we got into town must have been like 1 30. our friends who went through uh, gare du nord were there about 45 minutes before us but uh, like i uh, again speaking to my friends there was people there were people um some old man friend of a friend got mugged three times on the way to his hotel and basically i think anyone left on his own uh was stuck i think fans were teaming up uh, to try to defend themselves. Uh, there was reports actually now I'm reading about Real Madrid fans being attacked as well. It was fairly indiscriminate. And, the, and by the sounds of it, the police really weren't interested in doing very much. But uh, yeah, it was pretty hairy. Um, but I mean, I think we were, like my group, we also had unscathed, but uh, many others weren't so lucky. Yeah, the ramifications for this will uh, certainly rumble on for some time to come. Uh, so that was the Champions League. What about the Championship? Well, that's of no concern to Daniel and I for at least a year. Find out why next. season has reached its dramatic conclusion and we're going to have a quick look at the outright market for next year, the 22-23 season. Man City will be favourites. They are currently 4-6 and City have already been active in the transfer market. Their big name signing, of course, Erling Haaland coming in from Dortmund. He'll be leading the line next season and Man City odds on to get their fifth title in six years. Liverpool currently second in the betting at 15 to 8. Can they put this season's end of season disappointment behind them? Sadio Mane appears to be on the way out. Will be interesting to see what sort of business Jurgen Klopp does over the summer. Next in the betting at 16 to 1, we have Tottenham and Chelsea. Chelsea on a bit of a mini drought at the moment, five years since their last league title. And of course, new ownership with Roman Abramovich out the door. Will be interesting to see how Chelsea fare over the summer. This season will be the 10th season since Man United have won the title. Of course, they've got a new manager now, Eric Ten Hag, but he's got big work on his hands at Old Trafford. Man United are 25-1 to for the Premier League title. And after Nottingham Forest beat Huddersfield in the playoff final, we now know all teams that will be taking part in the Premier League. And only once in Premier League history has the three promoted clubs been sent back down. But the betting at the moment suggests that the three promoted teams are in trouble. Nottingham Forest at 8-11, Bournemouth also 8-11 and Fulham at 11-10. They are the three favourites in the relegation market. You can find out all these odds and more at paddypower.com or indeed the Paddy Power app. Prices are accurate at the time of recording. It's over 18s. T's and C's apply. Be gambleaware.org. And please remember, take time to think. This is the Totally Football Show, part of the Athletic Podcast Network. The Athletic is the only place you can read articles by Daniel Taylor, Amy Lawrence, Phil Hay, James Pierce, Ollie Kay, and the very best football writers around. Nottingham Forest will be in the Premier League for the first time in 23 years when August rolls around. The Reds snuck past Huddersfield Town in the Championship playoff final thanks to a Levi Colwell own goal, some stout defending and a couple of lovely farewell gifts from Jonathan Moss. Uh, Daniel, first the intertotally and now this. What a season you're having. <laughs> yeah, the two the two big ones. Uh, two stars above the Daniel Story badge. Um, yeah, I mean, it, firstly, we should say it was a, a pretty rotten game. It was a, an incredibly tense, nervous match. I thought Carlos Corbran came out to to kill the game, to not leave any space in behind for, for Brennan Johnson and Jed Spence, which was probably the right thing to do. But then when your team doesn't have a shot on target in a playoff final, inevitably it's going to feel like you, you, you've missed the chance to give it a go. And I think that will probably be the overwhelming feeling of Huddersfield fans after they've maybe got over the the annoyance of the two penalty decisions. I felt a bit for John Moss yesterday, I have to say, because if if there were failures there, and I think there were, they were VAR failures, not John Moss failures. I, I, I think it was perfectly reasonable not to give those two penalties in real time. The mistake he made was, I think, was booking um, Harry Toffolo because I don't think it was a dive, whatever happened, and, and you can't take that booking away. Um, but I'm amazed that he wasn't asked to go look at the screen for... for Either of them, quite frankly, uh, you know, as a as a partisan football writer on the day, I I can't pretend I wasn't un, you know unha- very happy to see it, but it was the wrong decision on both counts. It, it, they were both penalties. 
Uh, here's totally stole Adrian Clark tweeting, VAR is not fit for purpose in my opinion. Regardless of what happened here at Wembley today, the current crop of officials just aren't up to it. They get it wrong anyway, just three minutes later. Football is better off without it. Uh, would you agree with that, Michael? I didn't really agree with any of the situation here. I mean, one, I don't like VAR and I wish it wasn't in football. Two, I don't like the fact that VAR was just brought in for the playoffs because I think you shouldn't contest uh, part of the league season with different rules. And three, yeah, if you have VAR, I don't understand why the referee didn't look at those two decisions. I think the first one was arguably, it was one of those where I think it would have been tough to overturn because I'm not sure it was a complete, clear and obvious opportunity. But the second one, I thought was even more of a penalty. So, yeah, a frustrating experience, I think, watching watching that game. Yeah, hard luck, Huddersfield. Now let's revel in the glory that is Nottingham Forest <laughs> returning to the Premier League. Uh, Sasha, as Daniel said, it was a stinker of a game, which is a bit of a shame, really, because I think for my money, you had by far and away the two best coaches in, in the division this season. Um, but obviously, Daniel, I, everybody else with Nottingham Forest connections doesn't care about that today. And I think over the course of the season, Forest are deserving of a place in the Premier League next year. What they've done bar the first seven games is, is pretty extraordinary. Yeah, and I, th- I think um, for our generation, this name going up is is, is, is a team that, um, you know, I think a, a lot of fans would like to see and would like to visit in the Premier League, regardless of, you know, any spending or, uh, you know, maybe even the actual football that they play, because, just because of the name itself. But certainly, you know, in the league, such as the championship, to come back from the dreadful start that Forest have had, uh, it was absolutely extraordinary and unexpected. And of course, presumably for you, Matt, as well, after 22 years of failure, to, uh, you're probably thinking relegation early part of the season um, and then suddenly you're propelled to, propelled to the Premier League and I think you know I, th- I think I'm not sure if they're going to write books about this but I'm, I'm pretty sure they will but it's, it's definitely um, a great story after all those years I mean for me personally I, I was gutted that I couldn't go to uh, City Ground uh, earlier this season to in the FA Cup but at the back of my mind I was hoping that Forrest will go up so that I can actually go to City Ground for the first time in my life I mean I've been to see cricket in Nottingham but I haven't been to see to see the football so I'm um, very much looking forward to this trip This isn't a, a, a Nottingham Forest podcast Let, can we do, let's just say that <laughs> but there are things here that can apply to any number of, of clubs in the Championship and, and League One as well that the championship is either a meritocracy or you have parachute payments. And if you have parachute payments, you have a huge advantage. And from then on, it becomes a meritocracy. And Forrest got what they deserved over those 22, 23 years. They were either badly run, shambolically run, or didn't seem to be being run at all. And what Steve Cooper has done, and you listen to to the interviews from, from Joe Worrell and from Steve Cook and Jack Colback yesterday... All of them say before themselves, yes, they talked about the fans and that's the kind of stereo, you know, the cliche, you do that. And then they all say, we're just really happy for Steve Cooper because he came in and he made us believe. And it sounds incredibly simple and it sounds like it should happen at every club. And when you hear Cooper, he can't quite believe it wasn't happening before. But he, he he's got an excellent group of players there and he's turned, he's clearly brilliant at working with young players. He's got a history of doing that. He's he's now a manager who has a in, pretty impressively upward trajectory when you think about the, the England Under-17 World Cup win and then two playoff finals or two playoff campaigns with Swansea, who are now lower, and now with Forrest. He will be... He's already very, very highly considered at the FA. He's pretty highly considered at Liverpool, I think, from his work there. So he is a manager on a, a huge upward trajectory. And, and as a Forrest supporter... I think we just have to be pretty grateful that it was us that that landed upon him. Let's not pretend that there was any grand master plan by that. We had Chris Uton as manager at the start of the season and we took one point from our first seven games and then we appointed Steve Cooper. This wasn't some you know, five-year project or some grand blueprint that we were planning for. We've landed upon a fantastic coach and, and by all accounts a, a decent guy as well. And that really can make the difference, I think, in the championship because it's relentless um, there will be odds on favourites to go down but that doesn't really matter um, it's, it's a game changer for clubs getting out of the, the, the football league after so long in it yeah the way he's united 
the fan base in the club is absolutely extraordinary. The, the kind of scenes you saw at Wembley and throughout this season are not typical with Forest games in recent years. Um, Michael, he, he ought to be able to to attract some decent players to Forest as well, hasn't he? Da- Daniel mentions his, his work with the England under-17 team, but you know Jurgen Klopp shouting him out in his acceptance speech for the LMA award last week. You'd think that, say, the bigger Premier League clubs would... would be interested in loaning players to Forest because they'll get Premier League experience, but they'll get it with a coach who will develop them as players at the same time. Yeah, you're spot on. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I think I think that's what they look at these days. It's it's more about the coach and how they're developed rather than necessarily the club and what kind of playing time they're going to get. So um, he's a very interesting manager, Cooper. Um, uh, I'm excited to see what he does in the Premier League. Um, I think it is tough at the moment for newly promoted teams to survive because I think some of the teams who maybe two or three years ago you would say are kind of perennial relegation battlers have actually got some money and are kind of pushing higher in the table. I mean, the likes of Newcastle and Aston Villa, you don't think are going to be involved in relegation, whereas two years ago I would have said they would be. So I think it will be tough to stay up, but uh, I'm looking forward to see how they go about it. Also, I mean, I mean, Burnley. What <laughs> beggars can't be choosers, by all accounts. But Burnley, Watford, and Norwich going down this season, they really did feel like the three weakest clubs in the league. Yes, Leeds are not guaranteed to finish any higher. Brentford have kind of the second season thing, and and Southampton, I think, are in a bit of a weird hinterland at the moment. But it looks an incredibly strong Premier League next season, as Michael says. The Burnley, Watford, Norwich triumvirate. They if one of those stays up, you think, well, even as a promoted club, maybe we can we have to finish above Burnley or we have to finish above Watford, whatever happens. There aren't many of those clubs next season in the Premier League. So uh, guys, financially, what's the way forward next season? New signings or loss of low knees? And I mean how crucial was this promotion for Forest as well? Because I've looked at the uh, I mean, those numbers that were published for championship clubs earlier this season, it's a freaking disaster. Um, yeah. Like, they're, they're spending so far beyond their means. It's uh, like, I'm absolutely wondrous how these clubs, A, aren't getting fined for it, and B, uh, aren't going out of business. I think um, I, 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 we can only really say this in hindsight, but I think history will show that this is the perfect season to get out of the championship for any club. Um, because during COVID, there have been allowances for, for that Um uh, whether it's wage revenue um, ratios, which in the championship are standard about 130% on average, um, which is is frightening, quite frankly. And, and there is a cliff that clubs are edging towards that nobody really wants to think about. Uh, so yes, it, it postpones that disaster. It, um, Forest's plan will be to try and make as many of the loans that they've got at the moment permanent. And... Uh, if anyone leaves, replace them with a couple of lone players and I think probably try and pick off the best of the championship. That would seem to be the sensible way forward. Uh, whether they can get Jed Spence, who's very happy at the club, has been linked with Spurs and Arsenal over the last couple of months, I don't know. James Garner, Manchester United, it sounds like are going to have a look at him in pre-season, so if that's, there's a deal to be done, it won't be for a while. Um, but it's it's keeping players. Joe, Joe Worrell and Brennan Johnson would almost certainly have left this season if we'd have lost yesterday. And there's a good chance that they might stay now. And that kind of thing can at least give you a bit of a bump in August and September. And and then you scratch around for points between then and May. Uh, it won't be easy. Now, congratulations to Forrest then. Congratulations to, to Jed Spence for winning Twitter with his dig at Neil Warnock post-match too. Uh, plenty more of that on the Totally Football League show. The final episode of the season will be with you sometime on Monday. Place your bets. Welcome to Pep Roulette. Charlotte, feeling confident today, me. And your selection? Just start up front. Blue number 9 and 26. Uh, 17 as well, just behind the front too. Like. Excellent. Good luck. Blue number 7. Unlucky, sir. Oh, Sterling, he started last week. Predicting Pep's lineups is hard, but fortunately, we've made our bet builder easy. Simply choose a top pre-built bet builder, click add to bet slip, select your stake, and done. Paddy power. Online exclusive. T's and C's apply. 18 plus. BeGambleAware.org. This episode is brought to you by Michelob Ultra, the official beer sponsor of the NBA. Want to get closer to the game than ever before? Michelob Ultra Courtside is giving fans the chance to win exclusive NBA prizes and experiences like official gear, courtside seats to an NBA game, and more. Head over to MichelobUltra.com slash courtside to learn more. 
on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Smart Speaker, and now ad-free on The Athletic. This is The Totally Football Show. All right, Ralph Ranić has announced that he actually won't be staying on at Manchester United as a consultant. He'll now take on the role of Austria manager for their upcoming Nations League fixtures. Um, Michael, on, on a pod a few weeks ago, I opined that this might be the worst ever appointment by a big six club in the Premier League. I mean, to say it's not worked out would be putting it mildly. Yeah, it's been a disaster. Um, I mean, I was always slightly sceptical about the Ranić thing, but I was hugely sceptical about the consultancy agreement. I don't understand why everyone was so positive about it. I mean, I've never heard of a consultant manager at a football club, and yet it was treated as this absolute genius move. And I think, really, the reality was that Manchester United needed a short-term manager. Ranić had, I believe, a two-and-a-half-year contract remaining in Moscow. He wasn't going to leave a two-and-a-half-year contract for a six-month contract. So they basically agreed to to extend the, uh, the contract to... For financial reasons, but I mean, it's quite clear that Eric Ten Hag doesn't seem to have the slightest interest in anything he's he's got to say. Um, and I do sympathise with that viewpoint. The only other consultant I can think of is Barry Fry. I mean, if that's your, <laughs> if that's your frame of reference, it's probably not ideal. Was he in Dowie, not te- a football consultant, when he first got oh, the yeah, job yeah. at... Was Charlton, it? was it? Uh, yeah, Charlton, yeah. I think he was a kind of manager, cup, but he, he was doing it at the same time, I think. And also, just a small note on that locomotive Moscow gig. Um, I think people in Russia were and still are, I think, quite confused about exactly what his role was. And his contribution has been has been very bizarre. And his communication was very odd at, at locomotive as well. So, like, I was looking at that consultancy before the United one, and I was like, this is quite a confusing thing that he is doing here. And again, at locomotive, I'm not sure what what his consultancy achieved, if anything at all, even before the Russian football went off the cliff because of the war. I mean, I I, I was quite sceptical about a lot of the stuff about Ragnick when he was appointed, but I increasingly think this has been one of the greatest ruses in football history. I mean, you know, a reasonably interesting guy, mid-table manager, had some interesting ideas, but I mean, he spent the best part of a decade not really managing, but relentlessly being interviewed everywhere he can. I mean, he's he's desperately put himself in the limelight for 10 years. You can go back, kind of find interviews five or six years ago, where he's talking about that Manchester United are in need of a director of football and someone to sort the club out. And you think he's he's basically creating his own transfer links with himself to big club. And five years later, he ends up getting the job. I, I mean, honestly, I think someone needs to do some proper digging on all this because I think, I think a lot of people have been fooled, basically. Uh, I think it's an extraordinary story. The Barry Fry comparison gets realer and realer the more we get into this. Um, it's good news for Eric Ten Hag there, right, Daniel? He, he could just move on and, and doesn't have to even pay lip service to whatever Ranić was going to tell him. Yeah, it's a it's a, a fresh start, at least. I mean, any 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 sense that there was going to be this kind of handover period and that there was this sort of evolution between interim manager and, and permanent manager, that... That I think can work if the interim manager has done very well. It, it there's absolutely no point to it if the interim manager has been a complete disaster. Um, if anything, it, it will it will tarnish a, a permanent manager's attempts to try and rid the club of any malaise that Rangnick certainly hasn't helped, and let's face it, has probably exacerbated. Um, so yes, Ten Hag needs that that fresh start. I don't blame him for not listening to Rangnick because I think he's made his job doubly hard. Maybe Ten Hag doesn't get that job if if Rangnick doesn't do so badly. So that might be one way Ten Hag looks at it. But he's certainly made this summer an awful lot harder because the dressing room, you know, it's not even that there are leaks and rumours about how much of a mess it is. It's openly a mess. Players are, you know, Scott McTominay, Jesse Lingard, players have openly spoken about how horrible it has been in that dressing room. That's not an easy situation for a for a manager to take over. And... Good luck to Eric Ten Hag, I think. I think the only thing in his favour is that everybody now knows how much of a mess United are in and therefore there's no secret. So there's some sympathy if he doesn't isn't able to get it right quickly. And there's this thing that Manchester United has been like this for five or six years and it keeps on happening. But, I mean, it wasn't the case last year. This time last year, they just finished second. They probably overachieved by finishing second. But I think part of that overachievement was because they seemed to have a fairly United dressing room who are all on the same page and a couple of big players were doing really well for them. So the the kind of destruction of all that over the course of just a year has just been incredible, really. 
Yeah, big job for Eric Ten Hag, no doubt. Uh, now, the game of the weekend came in the National League playoffs. Grimsby winning 5-4 away at Ryan Reynolds' Wrexham after extra time. It sets up a playoff final with Neil Ardley's Solihull Moors on Sunday at the London Stadium for a place in the Football League. Uh, elsewhere, Port Vale promoted to League One following their 3-0 playoff final victory over Mansfield on Saturday. An emotional afternoon at Wembley for Mansfield-born Port Vale manager Daryl Clark, who spent time away from the club following a family bereavement in February. Again, plenty more on that game in the Totally Football League show. Uh, Sash mentioned this earlier. Sunday night seen probably the most frightening in the uh, recent spate of pitch invasion. San Etienne relegated to League Dirt in the relegation promotion playoff. They lost to Auxerre on penalties and the home fans immediately stormed the pitch, throwing flares and smoke bombs at the players. Uh, We've spoken a lot and and wrung our hands, Sash, about what's happened in English football over the last couple of weeks, but this is kind of reflective of the season in French football and and a a massive issue for them. Yeah, this seems to be like building up, building up, building up and exploding in this final game uh, of of the season. And and I I think every time French football seems to be mentioned now, it's because something slightly out of control happened with the fans. And and again, again, I don't know what kind of a social issue this is and how much of a lockdown, or I don't know. I'm trying to sort of piece together also my experiences in, in Paris and other people's experiences. You know, what these guys causing trouble with the football fans? Is it just that they f- funnel it through football? Uh, but it does seem to have like a bit of an undercurrent of society gone slightly berserk and police almost not maybe understanding what to do with this. Or maybe, um, you know, the lines between, you know, clubs and ultras and, uh, you know, maybe are slightly more blurred. You know, how, again, how are these people in the grounds all the time? And why is it keep happening over and over again? Um, and again, the extent of violence um, at Saint-Étienne, it was just absolutely mind-boggling. All right, still a little more to go today. Next, we're going to preview the World Cup playoff between Scotland and Ukraine. We're sponsored for this episode of The Totally Football Show by Shopify. Shopify is the global commerce platform helping you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage, Shopify's there to help you grow. From their all-in-one e-commerce platform to their in-person POS system, wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify has got you covered. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout, which is up to 36% better compared to other leading commerce platforms. Plus, you can sell more with less effort thanks to Shopify Magic, your AI-powered all-star. And what's more, Shopify's award-winning 24-7 support is there to help your success every step of the way. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Now, because you listen to The Totally Football Show, you can sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com totally, all in lowercase. So go to shopify.com slash totally to grow your business no matter what stage you're in. That's S-H-O-P-I-F-Y dot com slash totally. Looking for the best place to buy tickets for any of your favorite teams or sporting events? We've got the spot. Our partner, StubHub, has been the leading ticket marketplace in the world for over 20 years, providing a 100% guarantee with every order. From a worldwide selection of live events, the widest choice of tickets and industry-leading partnerships, StubHub has what you need to purchase with confidence. StubHub, an official partner of The Athletic. You're listening to The Totally Football Show in association with Paddy Power. And with Paddy Power, if something doesn't go quite to plan, you can get your money back as a free bet if one leg of your bet builder lets you down. Which is excellent news for Everton fans when they make their Lampardian transition from serious to funny to serious once again. Pre-match bet builders only get your stake back as a free bet. Minimum four plus legs. Maximum free bet is £10. Excludes enhanced match odds. Online exclusives and T's and C's apply. The last European spot of the World Cup will be decided in the next week. Scotland hosts Ukraine at Hampden Park with the winners travelling to Cardiff to take on Wales on Sunday for a place in Qatar. Joining us now is the Ukrainian football expert, Andrew Todos. Uh, Andrew, obviously an incredibly difficult match to prepare for. How have Ukraine been doing that? Yeah, it's been rather, as you can say, unorthodox. Uh, when when the draw was first made at the end of November, I think Ukraine were expecting a lot more of a straightforward preparation. And up until the 24th of February, that's how it was going, you know, just a month until the original start date of this match. But sadly, the war and invasion broke out across Ukraine. Uh, a lot of the domestic players had just returned from their 
winter training camps uh, in Turkey and elsewhere. And we're preparing for the Ukrainian Premier League season to restart after the winter break on the 26th. So due to the war, due to the invasion, that didn't happen. Everything was postponed. Everything was in limbo. Fortunately, um, the experts that thought Kiev and Ukraine would fall in a couple of days were completely wrong. And after about a month, month and a half of the players having to stay in bomb shelters, having to hide in car parks and all that kind of thing during the air raids, the Dynamo Kiev and Shakhtar Donetsk players were allowed to leave on a special charity world tour, you could say. And that meant that they could leave the borders of Ukraine because due to martial law, 18 to 60-year-old men were not allowed to leave at all and they'd either have to fight or, you know, just in general just weren't allowed to, to leave the borders. But these players were. They ended up being able to train in Bucharest. Shakhtar were able to train in Turkey. And then they played a series of friendlies. I think the most high-profile one was against Borussia Dortmund at the end of April. And this allowed the players to get a bit more match sharpness, match fitness ahead of this Ukraine training camp, you could say. So out of the current squad that Ukraine have, about 17 of the players are from are from Ukraine's domestic league. So you had a lot of those players playing in those friendlies, etc. And then at the start of May, Ukraine convened in Slovenia at the Slovenian national team base, which was kindly uh, provided by UEFA, all expenses paid for. And they've been training there ever since, all the domestic best players waiting on the foreign-based players, such as Mikolenko, Yermolenko, Zinchenko, Yaramchuk, Malinovsky and the rest to come. And just in this past week, they have all arrived and they've had a week of preparation in the camp. And they've also played three club friendlies, you could say, out of the ordinary matches where Ukraine have been playing against clubs over the past three or four weeks. One against Bridgman Gladbach, uh, one against Empoli and then one against Rijeka. Overall, they're as prepared as possibly can be given the circumstances. What kind of coverage is the game getting in Ukraine, if any? Is it, is it an unwanted distraction, this, or, or is it something that can take everybody's mind off, off what's been happening, if only for 90 minutes? No, absolutely. I think it's a, a very welcome distraction, if anything. I think a lot of people have been looking forward to this. Certainly the biggest game of the year and one of the biggest games in Ukraine's um, recent footballing history, aside from the Euros that they regularly qualify for, but they haven't been to a World Cup since 2006. So purely from a footballing aspect, it's big. But similarly, due to the war and everything that's going on, the players, I think, are extra motivated to make the next round and then onto Qatar as well, because they know that if they make it to Qatar, they'll be able to give Ukraine an even bigger account of themselves, where they'll be able to say, look, Ukraine is still surviving. We're here. We're here on the world stage. And I think with the sort of crowds that the World Cup draws in, uh, over a billion people, then it certainly is one of these big stages that Ukraine can show that it is very much continuing and surviving uh, as a country. Finally, then, what, what kind of chance do you, do you give them in the match? Obviously, it's a, a return to a place that they've enjoyed playing at fairly recently, having beaten Sweden in the round of 16 at the Euros at Hamden last year. Yeah, absolutely. That was an absolutely crazy game, especially the last minute winner there. Some of the soldiers on the front line have managed to get messages to the squad where they've said, listen, guys, we're doing everything we can on the front lines with the guns. You just do everything you do on the pitch and make Qatar. So they don't need much going on from that perspective. I'm slightly sceptical, maybe the match fitness, because as I mentioned, some of the domestic players haven't played a competitive match since December. So, you know, you can play as many friendlies as you want, but the intensity of like a, a real competitive match isn't always there. And obviously the entire Scotland squad have been playing week in, week out uh, for their clubs. So that might be problematic. I'm just slightly a bit concerned about Ukraine's record against British sides when they're playing on the British Isles. The last time they played at Hampton against Scotland in 2008, 3-1 loss. 
they've never beaten England on home soil here on the British Isles. And it will be an interesting one, to say the least. Maybe the hoodoo can be finally broken. Let's hope so for Ukraine's sake. Andrew, enjoy the game. Many thanks for joining us. Thanks very much. Daniel, in my mind, I'm seeing that Mitchell and Webb sketch of them looking down at their uniforms and thinking, are we the baddies? Um, that's kind of the position Scotland are in here, right? It's a weird game for them to prepare for. Yeah, there was that Andrew Robertson um, interview before the, the Champions League final. Uh, I think it was from the media day last Wednesday in which he, he got a question about Scotland and kind of said, look, we need to forget about the war in Ukraine and we need to go out and beat them. And initially... I kind of involuntarily sort of winced slightly at that. But he's absolutely right. (laughs) Like, of course, Scotland are allowed to want to win that game. Of course, Scotland are allowed to want to beat Ukraine 4-0. It doesn't matter that Ukraine are are fueled by this incredibly emotional, incredibly geopolitically sensitive set of circumstances. Scotland have to not think about that at all. Uh, I don't think they are the baddies. I think, you know, it sounds twee, but this is football now. And... um, Scotland have just as much right to feel like they deserve to go through as Ukraine do. Uh, I have to say, and without being a complete spoil sport for this game, I think Wales probably beat whichever team qualifies. I think Wales are the strongest team of the three and the atmosphere for the Austria game at um, at the Cardiff City Stadium was probably the best atmosphere I've I've been to in 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 the UK. Uh, and they will do that again for the final. So I suspect, I expect Wales to win, but um, I, I've basically got no idea about this game, who wins. <laughs> I've got absolutely no idea. I've got, I've got no idea how much the emotion side of things affects Ukraine in a positive way or in a negative way on the pitch. I've got no idea about their match fitness. I've got no idea really where Scotland are at in terms of goal scorers, because that's that's always been the issue. Um, so I think it's a complete coin toss. Yep, Wednesday night for that one should be good. Uh, right, we're nearly done for the show and for the season. We're going to have a quick look ahead to the next campaign already, listener. Uh, Sash, you'll be pleased at the Premier League lineup, right? Now you've got Fulham, a short bike ride away from your house to go with Brentford too. Uh, and pretty Chelsea, southern. A, short bike, a short bike ride away as well. Excellent uh, stuff. It's quite a southern heavy Premier League next season, right? Seven from London, three South Coast clubs. Yeah, and I don't know whether that's, you know, a suggestive of the greater society and where the money is, but it's certainly curious um, uh, that I think we could have, you know, if Luton had got up, I mean, that would have been crazy, but that would have been almost like 11 clubs in this cluster. Uh, but it feels like, you know, if a certain club goes down, it maybe it gets replaced by two at the moment. Um, and, you know, certainly it's convenient for me because I think every one of these is within an hour and a half of my house. Uh, but it feels maybe it's going back to the old days of football. We have a cluster in the Northwest and a cluster in London. Yeah, certainly looks that way. Uh, Michael, you love a prediction. I've already said that Wolves might struggle next season. Anything that leaping out at you at the moment where you think somebody might do well or might struggle or something that we might see next season? Uh, just a quick one on the geography. I did a, an article this time last year about the kind of gradual shift of north to south in mm-hmm. in the top flight terms. Um, and yeah, I, I need to do the calculations, but I think this is just about going to be the most southern league uh, there's ever been. Can't wait to do the uh, Google Maps coordinates on that one, I must say. <laughs> um, <laughs> predictions, no, I mean, just to kind of go back to what I said earlier uh, and what Daniel said about the, the three weakest sides going down, I just worry whether there will be a bit of kind of detachment at the bottom of the league, which we do seem to see more often now. Just someone getting 15, 20, 25 points um, and there not being that much of a relegation fight. Um, wouldn't want to name names because I must admit I don't follow the championship as closely as I should do but I do think that is um, increasingly a problem although at the same time we've we've had a couple of clubs who've who've come up and done very well and then have had massive second season syndrome so I I don't know I can't offer any predictions at this stage I I just haven't thought about it I'm sorry Fair Uh, Fulham look a bit better placed than last time Daniel you'd suggest it to make a decent fist of of staying up, Bournemouth probably struggle, and, and Southampton. I mean, sacking three members of Ralph Hasnoodle's staff while he's on holiday feels like a a bit of a cold move. Yeah, I, I think Fulham next season, more so even than Norwich this season, are a kind of perfect test case for the gap between the Championship and, and the Premier League. Because, you know, even through the prism of, of Alexander Mitrovic, who scored 43 Championship goals uh, in the season just finished, um, which is a... You know, it's a kind of 
1980s vibe total of of goal scoring at that level it's it's, it's it was ridiculous and he he hasn't scored as fluently or as prolifically in the Premier League before. I think if next season Fulham struggle and go down, and, and particularly if Mitrovic struggles to score goals, I think it feels like a real shift in... Yes, I know Brentford have come and stayed up, and I know Leeds have done it, and I know Sheffield United did it, and Huddersfield did it before them. But all of those either were relegated or came very close to being relegated in their second season. We'll see what happens with Brentford. But I just think Fulham feel like a huge test case because they they absolutely walked to the championship this season, didn't they? You know, I think they scored five or more goals something like seven times. It 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 was ludicrous at times. And if they then finish 19th or 20th next season, it, it really does there'll always be excitement at getting promoted. I'm not trying to kill any forest buzz here, but um it does feel like a daunting task when you look at the fixture list which we should say are out on June the 16th for Forest fans. Yeah, Fulham won 7-0 away from home twice in the league last season. A producer Charlie pointing out that only once in the history of the Premier League have all three promoted sides gone straight back down again. Right, that's going to do it for us for today and for a couple of weeks. The Totally Football Show will return in a fortnight's time. Then we'll be back twice weekly throughout the summer until the new campaign begins i speak on behalf of the team and jimbo too and i say thank you so much for listening to us this season we hope you'll be back with us in a fortnight's time until then many thanks to andrew for joining us earlier to michael to daniel to sasha as well and to producer charlie but mainly to you listener join us again in a couple of weeks bye for now you've been listening to the totally football show part of the athletic podcast network listen ad free on the athletic app and discover bonus content by following the Athletic UK Audio Plus on Apple Podcasts. Find out the very latest subscription offers at theathletic.com slash totally. The Totally Football Show is an Athletic Media Company production and sponsored by Paddy Power. The Athletic.